Well, good morning, everyone. My name is uh, Jonathan, and I am a recovering anxious person. <laughs> and that's a particularly relevant fact in my life at this very moment, not just because uh, I've been asked to bring home this sermon series on anxiety that we are working our way through, uh, but because, as you may know, if you're you know, at all aware of anything that's going on in the life of this church at the moment, uh, I'm in the midst of a great period of, of change and transition. Um, uh, this is actually my last Sunday at Urban Village Church, at least as a regular worshipping member. And as, uh, my, my, I have this very grand title, Theologian in Residence, which I did not create for myself. Uh, I just wanted you to know that. But anyway, after today, I, I won't be there anymore. So, you know, it won't be quite so highfalutin. Anyway, however exciting, however excited I am uh, by all the new things I'm moving into, uh, I'm also assailed by all kinds of anxieties about how the process will unfold and about all the things that might go wrong and, and about how smooth or bumpy the ride of the next few months uh, in my life and in our life together will be. So, this has been a very timely sermon series for me, this series on anxiety the last few weeks. But I do need to confess to you that I feel kind of fraudulent uh, preaching to you today and bringing this sermon series to a close because, you see, Anxiety is hard-baked into my soul. I am indeed uh, an anxious person. And I have a genetic inheritance to that because many of the people closest to me uh, were themselves, are themselves, deeply anxious people. And obviously that also means that I grew up in an environment of anxiety too, uh, as the formative adults around me worried over everything from whether they paid enough taxes to whether the weather would allow us to do the things we wanted to do tomorrow. You see, British people do indeed worry endlessly about the weather. That is a stereotype that is true. <laughs> so, nature and nurture. I was born to anxious people, and I was raised in an anxious environment, and guess what? I turned out anxious. I do all the things uh, that we've talked about this sermon series, most of all, I endlessly imagine worst-case scenarios. I know that's something that resonates with lots of you, too. And yes, uh, as, as Trey quoted Fred Beekner saying, I do hope that by thinking of all the worst-case scenarios, I will somehow magically avert them or subvert them or something. Uh, I also am the kind of person who lives in my head. Mostly, I quite like it there. <laughs> but sometimes it's like being trapped in this incessant sort of whirlwind of brain activity and you're desperate to find the off switch but somehow it's like one of those nightmares where it's really dark and you can't find it. And your mind continues to torment you and your thoughts continue to play tricks on you and you disappear down what sometimes feels like a sort of vortex of terror, especially in the middle of the night. You know, I worry about all kinds of things. I'll end up homeless and alone. I'll fail. I'll make the biggest mistake of my life and look ridiculous. I'll hurt the people I care most about. I'll get to the end of my life and think I've wasted it. I'll get fined or go to jail. I've really thought that. Or lose friends. Or whatever it is. I've been tormented by all of these things at various times, and I know that many of you have too. A really sad story, actually, but it gives you a sense of this. My grandfather, whom I adored, literally, literally worried himself to death. He would go through these periods of deep, sort of paralyzing despair that left him non-functional for days. 
And as he got older, he was less and less physically able, I think, to deal with the toll of this emotional uh, behavior. And it just took a state on his body until when he was in his 80s, although in excellent physical health, he had an episode of deep existential panic about a fairly minor ailment, which he was convinced was terminal, though it wasn't. And his heart kind of gave out under the strain of this anxiety that he'd placed himself under. Uh, and it struck me then, and I've often thought since, that it is possible literally to worry yourself to death. And often, of course, when the moment's passed or uh, when the cold light of morning comes after a sleepless night, the things you've worried about, the things you were terrified about can seem ludicrous, and sometimes you even laugh at yourself. And as I've reflected on that, it seems to me more and more that there is something else at play here sometimes than mere paranoia. It often feels, I don't know if it does to you, but it often feels to me like something from outside of me gets a hold of me in those periods and torments me. Trey was talking the other week um, about those principalities and powers the Bible speaks of, the forces we create and to which we give a whole life of their own to control us and dominate us and destroy us. There is something wicked, there is something evil about them in the sense that they distract us from what is true and they can drag us into what is false and into believing all manner of lies. They imprison us and thus they pull us into the very opposite of what Jesus tells us is supposed to be the essence of a Christian life. So maybe because of this, because of my tendency to fear and to be anxious, I've long been very captivated by the way Jesus both describes and models an alternative way of being in all of this. He promises us that life in him is freedom and wholeness and joy. He says he came to bring us, his words, life in all its fullness. Life in him is not being afraid. Indeed, that's the most frequently repeated command in the Bible. It's really neat. Someone counted it 365 times in the Bible. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Right? Don't be afraid. To the shepherds outside Bethlehem at Christmas time, don't be afraid. To the disciples in the middle of a great storm on a big lake, don't be afraid. To Jairus, whose daughter was dying, don't be afraid to those who were dreading the punitive actions of unjust rulers, don't be afraid. To the women seeing Jesus for the first time in his resurrection body, don't be afraid. It seems pretty clear. So how do we live into that? How do we live into this life that Jesus promises us and shows us and away from the terror? Well, what I'm discovering is that Jesus, in offering this quality of life, is not calling us simply to just sort of fix our minds on heaven, uh, or, or, or just try simply to drown out the anxious inner demons with pious phrases, or just even to try and distract ourselves and ignore them completely. Jesus is calling us to go inward, to enter more deeply into ourselves, to confront and even welcome those fears that we have, that we can unmask them and find at the deepest depths of our souls not the existential insecurity that we dread, but the God of love who is actually the ground of our being, 
and the very foundation of our reality. You see, I think that what we really fear beneath all the anxiety, what we really fear is that we're not okay, right? We're not safe. Our life is not secure. But in fact, as one of the Psalms says, what we find is that underneath all of that, once we've allowed ourselves to fall, underneath all of that are the everlasting arms of a God who loves us infinitely. As one of my favorite uh, spiritual writers says, it's ultimately a question of discovering our true identity. Who are you? In your own head, you're a person sometimes assaulted and assailed by all kinds of angst and fear and insecurity. In Christ, in your truest self, who you are is who you are in God. And the more you travel inward, the more you journey into your own soul, the more clearly you discover that you are safe. You are loved. You are of infinite worth. You're okay. And for all that, on a sliding scale, inconvenience or annoyance or even their real pain, don't want to diminish that. None of the things you worry about can ever, ever harm or damage or alter or destroy that basic identity, that fundamental reality. You are God's. You are safe, you are loved, you are okay. As the first letter of John says in the Bible, when you live in God, you live in love. And when you live in love, there is no fear and there is no need for fear. Or as Paul brilliantly and mystically says in Colossians chapter 3, your life is hidden with Christ in God. I love that phrase. And no one can ever get you there, or hurt you there, or take that inheritance, that promise, that reality away from you. No one, and nothing, ever. So when you find it, and I'm only journeying towards it like all of you, when you find it, it's a place of great clarity, and it's a place of immense and dangerous freedom. Why do I say clarity? Well, because when you begin to realize how silly and false and even ludicrous are all the things about which we are conditioned to be so anxious, the size of our house, or our car, or our bank balance, or the status of our place in society, or the amount of cellulite on our bodies, or even the grandiose nature of the legacy you want to leave, when you realize at the, the foolishness of some of these things, you may even be able to laugh at how much power you have given to these principalities. And why do I say it leads us to immense and dangerous freedom? Well, because people who are undertaking this journey inward, who are seeing and living into who they really are in God, who are discovering their security and their worth, have nothing to fear anymore. Their ego isn't in the way. And they are free to give their lives to the things that really matter, to the issues that will really change things, to the causes that truly shape humanity. And guess what? They aren't scared anymore. Valerie's already reminded us of this and of how Jesus is the ultimate example of this. Dealing with his own fears, which are real, by journeying inward towards God, and thus forming a sense of his own identity and purpose. But then Jesus journeys towards Jerusalem, and he takes on political injustice and religious hypocrisy all at once, 
and he does them, undoes them both with devastating and prophetic power. He is free. He is clear-sighted. And although he dreads elements of his physical suffering, he enters that suffering boldly because where it matters, he's not afraid. He knows who he is in God. He knows that neither the might of the Roman Empire nor the forces of religious authority can deprive him of his essential identity as a child of God. He knows he is eternally safe. To quote his own words, he knows he no longer needs to fear those who can destroy only his mortal body. He knows his ultimate identity, and so he isn't afraid. We've uh, been structuring this sermon series by pursuing um, the phrases of a famous prayer by uh, uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, a theologian. And we've entered the final section. Remember the prayer, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. That's where we are today. I think when we journey inward and discover ourselves as we really are in God, this wisdom turns out to be pretty surprising. People have been led by it to commit their lives to some very grand projects and purposes. And someone who illustrates, Valerie has just illustrated it brilliantly, but someone else who illustrates much of what I'm talking about, even though she actually isn't a Christian, is the Burmese opposition leader and Nobel Prize winner Aung San Suu Kyi. And I want to play you just a very, very short video. It's way out of date now because it was made while she was still in prison. Um, but it's a wonderful video that I think is relevant here. So I'm going to ask Mary to play that for us. It's Michael Stipe talking about it. In 1990, the Burmese people democratically voted overwhelmingly for Aung San Suu Kyi to leave their country. Burma's military regime has never honored the result of the vote of its own people. Why is an army of 400,000 soldiers so afraid of one woman? Is it because she might bring freedom of choice? She might allow freedom of speech? Or she may develop something as uncontrollable as education? Worst of all, she might bring freedom, justice, and hope. On May 30th, 2003, Aung San Suu Kyi was arrested by the army and imprisoned. She's now under house arrest. Those who have already been in a Burmese prison know that any day they're liable to be put back there, and yet they do not give up. The young people seem to depend on our organization to ensure a future for them, for us to nurture them, and to give them every chance we can that they may be able to make something out of their lives. Support Aung San Suu Kyi. Free Burma. Free your mind. been really struck for a long time by Aung San Suu Kyi. And by that phrase in that video, which I used to use a lot uh, when I was teaching, why is an army of 400,000 people so afraid of one woman? And how could she endure all that she endured? Decades of house arrest and solitary confinement, being kept from her husband and her sons even as her husband died of cancer, being constantly threatened with torture and execution. How could she endure all that? 
and emerged unafraid, ready to lead her people to freedom and even a strong advocate of the need for nonviolence and reconciliation. How? It's a miracle. Well, Aung San Suu Kyi is a practicing Buddhist and so comes by a slightly different route to the same thing I've been talking about. The speech that led initially to her house arrest was called Freedom from Fear. It was a rallying cry to the Burmese people, but it talked not of armed uprising, but of the need for what she calls a revolution of the spirit that would enable her people to discover their true selves, lay aside their fear, and change their country's unjust regime. I read an interview with her given after years of house arrest in which she was asked how she could endure all that she suffered and all the threats of worse to come. How could she be so humiliated, the interviewer said, and yet emerge with such dignity and courage? And she replied, no one can humiliate me but myself. She knows who she is. She knows that where it counts, she's safe. And she isn't afraid anymore. She even says that those decades of confinement were a gift to her because they enabled and allowed her the journey inward which led to her own revolution of the spirit. The wisdom to know the difference. Today's Bible reading, uh, which Sarah read for us, came from a section of the Old Testament called the Wisdom Section. Proverbs are thought by some to have been written by King Solomon himself. We often remember King Solomon as wise because the Bible tells us that on becoming king of Israel, succeeding his father David, he asked God for wisdom, and that was the right thing to ask for, and God was pleased and so gave it to him. And thus Solomon governed wisely and well. But that's actually only the beginning of the story. Solomon may have begun his public career and his reign as king with an inward journey, which gave him a deep understanding of what mattered most. And what mattered most was not his own comfort or privilege as king, but the welfare of his people and the peace of the nations around them. He may have started his reign with a revolution of the spirit, which brought him close to God and to a sense of his own identity and the purpose of his life. But Solomon didn't remain grounded there. We're told that he fell prey to several principalities and powers of his own creation and of a much more worldly kind. He became afraid that he wasn't going to look good among the other monarchs because he didn't have enough wealth. He got a taste for some extremely unusual uh, sexual activities and with a a large and ever-growing harem of concubines. Solomon began to fear that the simplicity of his devout religious life, his inward journey, wasn't really going to prove satisfactory, and so he began to rebuild all the occultish altars and shrines to the old gods throughout Israel. Solomon became less and less concerned with that inward journey that was the focus of his early life, and more and more obsessed with feeding the insecurities and the appetites of the spirit of his age. The Bible rather colorfully tells us that Solomon ended his life with 700 wives and 300 concubines, which sounds exhausting to me. Uh, But it also tells us that Solomon ended his life completely distracted from the affairs of state as he accumulated more and governed less. He committed terrible acts of sacrilege and idolatry simply to feed the demons that gnawed at his soul. And Solomon's folly culminated in the collapse of Israel itself. 
in a civil war which split the nation in two and uh, led ultimately to the weakness and the division that allowed Israel's enemies to overrun it. Poor Solomon. He's a compelling example of the chaotic, frenzied, fearful mess which our lives become when we neglect this inner journey, this simple revolution of the spirit, this inward realization of who we really are in God, in favor of striving after all the things which those principalities and powers tell us, warn us, threaten us, we must have in order to survive. If only he followed his own advice in the passage that Sarah read, sticking to the paths of justice he'd followed in his youth, he might indeed have discovered that God does indeed prove to be a shield, to use his word, to our hearts, protecting us from the lies and the fears of this world's principalities and powers, and reminding us of who we really are, that we are gods forever. I want to end this sermon by saying that if this doesn't feel quite like the core message of Christianity that you have heard so much uh, around you, well, you're not alone. There isn't much here, I guess, of who's going to go to heaven and who's going to go to hell, of dogma and doctrine in some sense. But in every generation, there have been those who keep reminding us of this core wisdom of Jesus, that the central task in every human life is this inward journey, the ability to discern what is true from what is a lie, and this spiritual revolution that leads us to our true identity, our true security, our true purpose and passion as the children of God. In the 16th century, one of my favorite saints, Teresa of Avila, struggling against the prejudice of a male church hierarchy, struggling against the opposition of her time, and the misunderstanding of her peers, struggling against the backdrop of a world in turmoil and violent change, a woman who did more than almost anyone else to transform religious awareness in her world. She wrote a near-perfect summary of this deep and unlikely wisdom when she said, let nothing disturb you, let nothing frighten you, everything passes, but God stays. She who has God, lacks nothing. God alone suffices. How do we get to this place? How do we get to this reality? Well, silence is our friend. Meditation, contemplation, prayer. Spend time with the great mystics, those whose own lives reflect the truth of this through experience. And in our own day, you can tell I'm married to Trey, in our own day, I can't recommend highly enough the work of Richard Raw, Franciscan, based in New Mexico. But also, what Jesus advised us, nature, the created order. Jesus told us that to find the consolation of being God's child, to know more fully this deep inward reality of our true identity, to discover this safety and security that we have in God, we should learn to read the world around us. Actually, our second song this morning summarized it perfectly. We should look, Jesus said, to flowers and birds and realize their security and safety and in that realization come to a better understanding of our own. Because they don't work or struggle or endlessly fret about what will happen to them tomorrow, but they're fine, they're safe, they're okay. And the same God is the God of all of us. All of us are who we really are, 
only in God who made us and loves us. So we'll conclude with a, a little spiritual exercise, if you like, a kind of a prayer. In our own day, the poet Wendell Berry has helped me to understand this, and I want to end with his poem. It's called The Peace of Wild Things. Uh, it's a perfect distillation of what Jesus meant, and it's become a kind of mantra for me lately. And then let's take the next or the first tiny step on our own inward journey by being still and silent just for a minute, by letting go of all the things which may be worrying and making us anxious today, as though we're just letting go of a, a helium balloon, and allowing God to re-infuse us with a sense of our true identity, our true purpose as God's beloved children. So Mary's going to bring up the poem on the screen. I'm going to read it, and then let's just be quiet for a moment. When despair for the world grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound, in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water, and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time, I rest in the grace of the world, and am free. <laughs>